Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil and find out. G'day everybody, welcome along. It is the V8 Sleuth Podcast powered by Timken, a world leader in engineered bearings and power transmission products and services. And on this edition, we are going to talk about the history of not V8 Supercars. Two-litre super touring for something different. It's something that a lot of our listeners have been asking for for the last few months. So we thought you ask, we oblige. And when I say we, it's not just me. Uh, Will Dale is with me down the Zoom line. Uh, top of the morning to you, my friend. G'day, you know, It's nice to be on the Straight 4, Straight 5 and V6 Sleuth podcast today. <laughs> Yeah, that's the one. Like uh, what I did there? <laughs> yeah, yeah, nice, nice. You've covered every engine format that Super Touring had, and some people would say five cylinders. Why do you think that Volvo sounded so good? It had five cylinders. Well, it did. Good thing. It was a good thing. Yeah. Um, we've got plenty to cover in this uh, Super Touring podcast, so many elements of discussion. We put the call out on socials a couple of weeks ago to tell everyone we were going to do a Super Touring feature episode, and... We had truckloads of responses, lots of different um, topics and variants of things that people would like to to hear about. But I, I guess um, to kick off the pod, we did a Super 2 episode going back a, a little while now. We've had some great chats throughout the course of the year and we've had awesome feedback and we keep getting um, awesome feedback. We've nearly, would you believe it, Will, we've nearly hit 500,000 downloads, which for a small independent podcast, we're not on a big platform, we do it all ourselves. We, yeah, I mean, you do all the editing. Uh, you do a bit of talking. I do some talking. I, I'm really proud of what we've achieved, but we can't do that without the awesome support and, and listenership of our sleuth faithful. Uh, I think this has gone better than you or I could have ever expected when we cranked this up, what, 14, 15 months ago. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, it's been like, it's been a cool journey for both of us. Like, just off the top of my head, sitting down with Jim Richards in his garage, sitting down with Troy Bayless in his garage and, and sitting next to his three World Superbike Championship winning bikes as we were having a chat. It's, it's been fantastic. And it's always great to get all that feedback from everyone, all the nice things and occasionally the criticisms, which, you know, make the product better at the end of the day. So, yeah, it's been lovely hearing from everyone and hearing that everyone that everyone enjoys it as much as we have. We got awesome feedback about the last episode. Grant Denyer was in stunning Grant form uh, <laughs> on the last podcast, so much so that my wife said that that's the best podcast that we've done in the entire series. And she's listened to them all, uh, and she is Mrs. Sleuth, so she knows best. But um, the response we had to the Grant podcast was off the chart, so we will have to drag him back at another stage and do another one because there were plenty of stories that we, we left up the sleeve that we just didn't get time to get to. But anyway, um, we've had an awesome um, 
response to our super touring uh, podcast. So let's let's bowl into it. Obviously, yes, we are V8 sleuth, but I think the reality is that we don't just deal with everything that's V8 related in terms of the, the categories or the cars, but everything that goes with it. And you kind of can't talk about V8 supercars in the 90s without talking about super touring because it was a constant comparison between the two. Now, I always saw them as just two different categories doing two different things, but it probably fueled a lot of rivalry and um, column inches at the time that we're starting to see a little bit of that again with the whole V8 and TCR type of things where it's same, but it's different in a lot of different aspects, but a lot of people have drawn the comparison. Well, I think a big driver of all that back in the day was the fact that both categories ended up with a Bathurst 1000. The fact that the original race ended up, or the um, the ARDC run traditional race, for want of a better term, um, went with Super Touring when the V8s departed, and then the V8s, V8, the new V8 Supercars category struck back by having its own race two weeks later. It, it was one of those things. Actually, Alan Gow spoke about this on the podcast that I did with him here on. Uh, the V8 Sleuth podcast earlier this year. If you haven't heard it, uh, he's the head of the British Touring Car Championship. He was back then uh, in the super touring era. And uh, his his viewpoint was very simply that they answered a phone call. Uh, Channel 7 called because, of course, Channel 7 were um, up to their ears as part of the uh, trio that ran the Bathurst 1000. They'd formed the consortium with the Australian Racing Drivers Club and the, the Bathurst City Council, as it was then, it's now the Bathurst Regional Council, um, V8 supercars, as they had then become known, were, I mean, in essence, the Bathurst brawl was over television. It was a dick swinging competition about television. So V8 supercars and a Vesco, as it, it was then, quite rightly, went and did a deal with Channel 10. Channel 7... The, isn't it funny how the swings and roundabouts are coming back <laughs> seven coming back to supercars next year that they should not have let that get away. They should have kept V8 racing on channel seven, but at the end of the day, they all cared about Bathurst. They just did the other stuff because it came with Bathurst, but uh, channel seven made a call through the, with the consortium, obviously to Toka looking for a field of cars to put on the grid for the Bathurst 1000. I don't think Toka went surfing and looking for a fight. They just picked up the pieces of the opportunity of V8s signing a Channel 10 television deal, having the consortium say, sorry, we've got to deal with seven. We're not going to just roll over and, and hand this over. Uh, and then we had a war for two or so years. And resulted in two pretty decent Bathurst 1000s run to super touring regulations, really. Yeah, I think they're the most overlooked races in great race history and they were two of the best. That 98 race, the elements of, and I guess we'll get into this a bit later on, but the qualify, the two things that stand out, the qualifying lap in the shootout by Ricard Rydell and the race-long duel between the race-winning Volvo of Rydell and Jim Richards and his son Stephen and Matt Neal in a Nissan Primera. Just phenomenal. Yeah, and it went all day. And that was in the realm and the era where, you know, Bathurst race wins weren't decided by 1.3 or 0.9 seconds as has become a bit more the norm in the, the more modern supercarrier of the last five to eight years. But I was there that weekend in 98, uh, the AMP Bathurst 1000. And the, the Rydell pole lap was stunning. Just think about it. So a Volvo S40 super touring car, which every year in the British Touring Car Championship, there was the gun car. Remember, it was the, the Alpha one year in 94. 
there was 97 was clearly a Renault Laguna year. Uh, 98 was the Volvos year. And then the Nissan Primera with Laurent Aiello was the next year. So there was a form gun car every year. And in 98, it was the Volvo. I mean, Ryder mm. won the British Touring Car Championship. They brought two cars out with TWR. Um, think about the, the maths. 300 and something-ish horsepower, front-wheel drive. Rydell does a 14.92, two-minute 14.92, in a front-wheel drive 300 horsepower uh, Super Tour, which, you know, they weren't shopping trolleys. They were purpose-built race cars with multi-million dollar pound budgets. But that is one of the best laps at Bathurst. I remember, because in those days, you'll remember, the shootout wasn't showing live. It was Saturday morning. Mm. It was showing later in the afternoon. So... I think Murph had got provisional pole on Friday in the Vectra and did a 16, low to mid 16, which was pretty honking for a a two litre car and under the times of the previous year by a fair way. Um, And then Rydell punches a 14.9 and everyone was gobsmacked by that. (laughs) Stunning. It's one of the best laps. I mean, we need to release that one on DVD somewhere down the track. And I'm sure, actually, I think we did because we slipped some of the super touring shootouts onto some of the previous DVDs. Maybe we only did the 97 shootout. We need to grab the 98 one, but either way, the two liter era at Bathurst, it was short and sharp, but it gave some um, stunning pieces of race history, but they're just overshadowed because they weren't the, the popular or the more popular V8 race. Well you, look at, well, you look in comparison with that lap time, the V8s had only just cracked into the nine-second region, the 209 region, the year before with Mark Scaife putting in a 209 in the warm-up for the shootout. So when you, fig- when you figure, yeah, okay, a V8 supercar has a lot more weight, a bit more tyre, a lot more power, that's, that's surprisingly close and probably closer than what a TCR car would, man- would manage in comparison to a V8 supercar net now yeah that's one of the questions about when the tcr cars finally run at bathurst um what sort of a lap time that they'd punch and i've I've asked a few of those drivers and and they all reckon 16s to 18s is probably about the mark because and and that's an interesting one we can talk a bit further about it later but uh they're turbocharged whereas the super tourists were all normally aspirated there was no turbocharge um and remember that they the, had a lot of technology underneath the, oh, underneath the skin though, oh, like probably far more in excess yeah. of what's in a TCR car now. A TCR car is quite frankly, a um, heavily, heavily spec lower end car than a super touring. I mean, if you put a, a 98 Volvo or a 99 Nissan or a, a BMW factory car or something, and you sat a, nicely presented uh, TCR car that's a race winner next to it. I mean, plus 20 years, th- there's huge differences. And and TCR, I, I've read so many people who've written online to us that TCR is the new super touring. And I can understand the, the theory there, but they are completely... The only thing they've got in common is that there's front-wheel drive two-litre race cars and they're small. But other than that, that's where the similarities end because... Super Touring turned into an arms race. And that's why as soon as it was doomed in England, it was doomed here because we were just the trickle down of cars and materials. So TCR is in essence, GT customer racing with touring cars. The The manufacturers all finally figured out through GT3 that uh, you can go racing without having to run a race team and you can sell race cars. So 
there's been over a thousand TCR cars from various manufacturers produced in the last, I think it's five or six years or, or, or whatever it is, but uh, it's customer sport racing. So it's not factories running factory teams. They're selling cars. They, you know, they might have a, a factory driver that they supply or a bit of backing here or there, but it's not like it wasn't super touring. And, and the rules are such that you just can't keep taking it to that nth degree that super touring got bullshit ridiculous with some of the, the costs that were going on there and it killed itself basically. So uh, I can see how there's a comparison, but in my mind, the two things are, are very, very different, albeit they share a few similarities. Well, that's it. Like TCR is essentially look taking the GT3 philosophy of customer sport racing and applying it to a touring car. Yeah. And the costs for that business model are never going to blow out as much as they did in the super touring era, purely due to the same sort of market forces that killed super touring. Because if you turn up in TCR with an absurdly expensive race car... Well, you won't. Well, you can't. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, there's a price ceiling you've got to hit. You just can't roll in with the um, 500,000 euro race car that's got more carbon fibre than you can jump over. It's it's certainly not that era. One of the interesting things I want to discuss too, Will, is I think there's always a little bit of time changes things for people. We probably couldn't have done a Super Touring Celebration podcast 10 years ago and had the same level of care from the fans mm. that we do now because... Super Touring in Australia, from a Toka perspective, uh, and we'll talk a bit more about Toka Australia in a minute, it's been gone for 20 years. The last season was 2000-01, which was run over the calendar year, so the back end of 2000, front end of 2001. Uh, not that long before the next season, uh, it was announced that Toka Australia was uh, disbanding and uh, not going to run. And some of the team owners and privateer runners did end up continuing Super Touring for a couple of years Firstly, with the Power Tour that raced with the, the, the V8 stock cars, which were the, the remnants leftovers of NASCAR on the Thunderdome uh, and Super Trucks. So it did kick on for a little while longer, but not at the level um, and exposure that, that it had been under Toka. But yeah, 20 years ago and 26 years ago since it started in terms of the, the two litre, um, what became Super Touring formula, uh, I think more time makes more people more fond. And the the, the absolute um, example of that is the Nissan GTR. At the time, hated, virtually run out of the sport. Now, we post photos and stories about them online and people go, oh, wasn't that fantastic? What a car. Wasn't it amazing? They've changed their tune in the last 25 years. And I reckon Super Touring is a bit the same where people who were a bit anti it or just very pro V8 now look at it and go, actually, you know what? They were pretty cool cars and what happened to that guy and what happened to that car and what was the real story there? Um, and we can strip some of those layers back now because enough time's passed. Oh, absolutely. And you think back, they were cool cars, they were cool drivers, and the racing was good, the broadcast was good because you think back to how the British Touring Car Championship um, televised their races. They weren't live. They were cut down highlights specifically tailored to sound live with Murray Walker commentating, but they packed all the exciting bits in. Yep. And they did the same here for quite a few years as well. You think back to those early broadcasts that were on Channel 9 at like 6am in the morning and then 11pm oh, yeah. at night after the Grand Prix. Yeah, yeah. yeah. With, with big Daryl Eastlake calling. Well, I remember that the... And this probably gets us on the topic of how it started, but two-litre touring car racing wasn't new in Australia because... No. 
we'd had class touring car racing for many years, of course, but they ran as the, the small car class in the in Group C or Group A. And, and then obviously in, in 92, um, the first five-litre V8 winged cars that would become V8 supercars later on down the line um, came through. So for 93, the decision was made that it would be a five-litre and two-litre touring car, a uh, couple of categories, but under the same umbrella. And obviously the rise of the British Touring Car Championship uh, since 91, the two-litre rules were in place there because Group A had got out of control and they wanted to come up with something that would um, be a bit more relevant and a bit more manageable um, than Formula Sierra, which is what they had for about three or four years before that. Uh, So for 1994, uh, the two-litre series began. It wasn't called Super Touring. The Super Touring brand of worldwide touring car two-litre racing uh, came in for 1995, but technically, I think they were called Class Two FIA touring cars. But uh, not, yeah, yeah, it's probably <laughs> not that sexy in terms of branding. Uh, yeah. For '94, it was the Valvoline Australian Manufacturers Championship. Uh, Toka Australia was created, and and of course, Toka UK was the 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 business that ran the British Touring Car Championship, of which Alan Gow headed then and does now. Uh, albeit with different stakeholders uh, back then. A few of the team owners got together back then to form Tokyo UK. But in terms of Toka Australia, uh, that was a, a, th- a tripartisan deal between Alan Gow, Terry Morris, father of Paul, and, of course, Peter Adderton, who, who these days everyone sees and knows for Boost Mobile. But back then he was involved um, with Greg Murphy uh, and obviously as part of the whole Audi Sport Australia operation uh, with Oryx and, and Brad Jones racing with Brad and Kim. So they were the three that got Toka started. And I remember watching those first uh, two litre shows. It was 6am Saturday mornings, half hour highlights. Uh, the weekends between the Australian rounds were the British Touring Car Championship highlights. So you'd get one race in one show of the Australian series and you'd get a Formula Brabham support race and a Porsche Cup or super production with Brad Jones and the Lotus Esprit and a bit of that stuff going on. Um, but you remember that first one at Eastern Creek where it was everyone took a turn at the lead. And I think at the next V8 round, didn't they present Tony Longhurst and Paul Morris with some sort of acting award? Because it was clear to see that they had uh, taken the mickey. Well, well, look, you know what? I would have done the same thing. There, there were like, I think it was... The BMs of Longhurst and Morris, Ellery Sierra, Peter Dulman's BM, uh, Phil Ward in the big Mercedes, as Daryl Eastlake used to say. I don't think it was actually that big, but it was a good, uh, a good um, way to describe it. And they just swapped the lead and passed one another. And it looked good on TV, but clearly we all knew what was going on. Well, it looked a lot better than the alternative of the two factory BMWs running away from everyone like they did for much of the rest of the season. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's when they weren't punching one another. So, <laughs> but they were still out in front a long way when that happened. Yeah, it was. Uh, but that's the that's the thing that sent them through the stratosphere into. You couldn't buy that PR. You know, no. that, the Biffo. So, it's probably the, one of the most known incidents in motor racing history, and it happened at a race that wasn't shown live. I tell you what, the PR arm would have swung into action that day as soon as that happened to get that bit of vision out to the networks for the Sunday night news. Uh, if you've been living under a rock for 26 years and you don't know what happened, uh, have a listen to this. Almost a touch, almost a touch there, Longhurst. He really got sideways. This is the last week because they're running out of left. Oh, no, 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 no. They've hit a 
that's a big shot, let me tell you. Longhurst tried. Oh, he's not happy either, Longhurst. He gets out of the car. I can't believe this. They're teammates, these two. Oh, no. He's put the biffo back into the bingle. Oh, Tony Longhurst. He's ropeable. An official comes over. He says, get out of it. Get out of it. I'm not interested. Have a look at it again. Morris. Morris, their wheels locked there. The wheels have locked there. And I don't know if Morris had anything to do with that. A red flag's out. Yeah, red flag there, Daryl. That'll take the results back to the last lap. It's uh, very unfortunate. I think there was a breakage there. Look at that way that tyre turned around. Oh, look at Tony Longhurst. He's having plenty to say. As far as he's concerned, Morris has taken him off. I'm not sure if that's the case. There'll be plenty said about this. So Longhurst and Morris will are racing for the win. They clash. The wheels get together and basically grab one another, spear themselves off into the fence, Longhurst gets out. He thinks he's been fenced by his teammate. Uh, launches one through the window, or two. I think he might have got a couple in. Um, left, right, then left again, I think. Yeah. <laughs> You've analysed it well. Something uh, like that. <laughs> yeah, and, and it was on the news. I remember for like a week, two weeks, and Longhurst got fined, I think, out of it. Quite a bit of money, but awesome PR for B&H, Diet Coke, and two-litre racing. If you weren't a race fan and you saw that on the news you'd be thinking, shit, I want to see the next round of this because that's good. Oh, absolutely. And I think it, it definitely worked because you look at the trajectory of that series in the years after, it definitely started to pick up steam from that point onwards. And the other thing too that reminds me is it was really well PR'd. Um, Mike Porter was a very experienced uh, publicist who did a lot of stuff with Around that time, he was Philip Morris's PR guy with the Peter Jackson program in, in V8s when Glenn Seaton was, was running under that banner. Um, I can't remember what year he picked up doing the, the super touring PR. I think Ingrid Ropers had done it before that, but they always did a really good job of pushing uh, good stories around the place and, and getting good cut through. And, and when you've got something like that to work with, that's always going to help as well. But um, it's one of the things that's missing today in sport motor racing. The art of PR has changed because now it's social media. You don't have to, it's, you still need to go out there and, and try to find and hunt a story. But in terms of being a race team, trying to get your team in the press or your series in the press, it just doesn't happen like that anymore. It's kind of a load of a press release onto your socials or, tweet a photo or it's just changed completely how to go about it. Which is a bit of a shame because you social media, ultimately you're for the most part, you're targeting people who and getting your message to people who are already somewhat on board. Whereas if you're going to the wider, more general public, you do that through things like newspapers, through the nightly news, through for want of a better word, traditional forms of media. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The Fall Guy, only in theatres May 3rd. Read it PG-13. The other thing that springs to mind talking about all that, your point before about the the television 
it was always a post-produced cut down program mm. slick. It was fast. So for the first few years though, first year was the 6am Saturday channel nine program, which I got up many times to watch because I didn't trust my VCR to record it at the right time. 95, they went to late night. Those shows were on after the Formula One Grand Prix. So sometimes they were on at 1am, 2am in the morning, which these days you would think is just crazy. But for 96 is when it flicked a switch because they went to Channel 10 and they had, a, I think, a two-hour post-produced program uh, that uh, Tim Jardine was involved in and Tim and his wife Fran run the, the big screens for the Australian Grand Prix Corporation at the Formula One Grand Prix at Albert Park and uh, in Singapore as well for the, the Singapore Grand Prix. So a lot of people who were heavily involved behind the scenes in the television production then went on to do more things at higher levels in motorsport and, and television in the years that followed. But you'd get Super Touring Sunday, 96, 97, 98. It was on Channel 10 for two hours for every show, which included a bit of uh, GTP, which was cool racing with McConville in Porsches and Jimmy Richards and John Bowen a Ferrari and a bit of that stuff going on. Uh, for 99, it went to Channel 7 with Mike Raymond and Alan Moffat doing... Um, it was Saturday lunchtimes, wasn't it? Midday, mm. I think, from memory. And and then often forgotten that Mike Raymond did come back and commentate that. Like everyone, yeah. like yeah. it's often thought that his involvement in commentating major touring car racing in Australia ended at the end of '95. But yeah, I think it was called. It was never that yeah. all those teeth. It was called Start Your Engines. Correct. It was. That was the name of the program that showed. Uh, by that stage, they spaced out the races and the rounds. It was a, a one-hour program at midday on a Saturday on Channel 7. And then for the last year, that 2001 season, um, we were back to late-night stuff because that was an Olympic year, remember, for Sydney Olympics. So the series started after the Olympics in late 2000. But again, we were at midnight to 2 a.m. type of time slots. Again, I remember sitting up and leaving the VCR recording and I'm sure I'm one of very few who did that, but I'm glad I did because I've got the history of all of that stuff uh, down pat. And that was Mark Beretta and Cam McConville actually, who did that, that last season on, on channel seven. So the formula of post-production television fit perfectly with the product all the way through. And we saw probably a, a really different bunch of, obviously it was the Daryl Eastlake stuff on, the channel nine era. And then when it went to 10, that's where we really got a lot of lead iffy for the first time. Mm. That was his first big gig um, to get the step up. There was a tie in through the Morrises in Queensland that gave him a go. And clearly, I mean, have a look now he's commentating the bloody Indy 500 for NBC sports. So uh, that's really where Diff got rolling. Uh, Crompo did a bit of stuff there because he was starting to be in channel 10 land. Um, I think Andy Raymond did a little bit of stuff in the early part of 97, Mark Fogarty was in, in and through there a little bit. Murph and, and Rusty made a duo there for a couple of seasons doing it. So um, it always had really good tally. And I think if you look back at some of the those shows, they were really well put together. And we're probably laboring the point on the television stuff just a little bit. But um, of course, we had Murray Walker come out and commentate the Bathurst 1000 in those yeah. years. Sorry, sorry, yeah. the Bathurst 1000 in those years. He, he, did, he did say that a few times. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 97 and 98, he came out two years in a row, didn't he? Which, I mean, there's, there's no more famous motorsport commentator in history than Murray Walker. He, he's going to be, you know, what is he now? 95 or thereabouts? Something uh, like that, yeah. Yeah, he's, he's been around. He's, he's seen it all. And 
Um, he, yeah, he's on the list. Yeah, I forgot about that. He's on the list of Bathurst 1000 TV commentators. Remember that I think Peter Brock took him for a lap in that Austin A30 replica and Brad Jones <laughs> took him for a lap in a, um, a super touring Audi at one stage too. So, yeah, that was a, a pretty cool part of, of Bathurst history. Um, was super touring ahead of its time? It's funny when you look at the, the, the new market uh, share back in those days of what Holden's Commodore and Ford's Falcon would have had in 1994, five, six, whatever year you want to call it, versus the car market now. Um, it was probably ahead of its time in terms of as a reflection of the market. If you wheeled it out now and forget the elements about its, um, you know, price explosion of building the cars and the cost of racing, but as a as a simp- as a product. Uh, would, would stand a far better chance these days than it did 25 years ago because purely it's a better reflection of the market. I think, I don't know, if you look at it, if you look at the explosion V8 that happened with V8 supercars and the level of popularity it then gained in the, in the, in the late nineties, early two, early to mid two thousands, if you shifted super touring to that point, I still think it, it would have struggled in Australia. No, I mean, and, it's been shifted here. If, if you applied it to, it, it was ahead of its time. If it was around now, with, uh, given the, the problem is the thing, the problem is the things that killed super touring then would, would be an even bigger problem now than they were back then. The spiraling budgets, the fact that manufacturers can't help themselves when regulations allow them to over-engineer the cars. If anything, with the current economic climate and how things have been the past five five, 10 years with how difficult it is to raise sponsorship and justify expenditure in motorsport. It might've killed the category even quicker. You're a killjoy, Dale. You are a killjoy. I'm trying to talk it up. I'm trying to give it rose colored glasses. <laughs> and you just crushed it. I, I think, I think it hit the perfect window that it could have, especially considering how big it was overseas where those kinds of cars were, were the cars that people were driving. They were the cars that people could relate to. And there was a gap, in the market here at that time in terms of in terms of premium motorsport especially with how the um australian touring car championship was being treated from a television perspective i had to come back to that point but through the latter channel seven years there was an opportunity and they took it i think probably there's a reason why marcello lotti and his team with tcr worldwide have gone the path that they have because that is the the lessons learned from mm. not super touring but from the, the more modern world touring car championship regulations and it's got to cut its cloth. It's got to suit the the landscape of the world. And and before, obviously this year with the weirdness of um, what's happened with COVID-19 and, and all the impact uh, it's probably, that's why TCR is what it is because it's the, the thing that has um, taken the lessons learned from previous times to, to implement them for now. Uh, and, and it probably raises the point that, I don't think super touring ever saw itself as a rival to V8 supercars. It was doing its own thing. Mm. Uh, And and if you think about it, it was the first of about three rivals that supercars has, supercars has always engaged itself to protect its turf. There's no doubt about it because Toka was a, a little bit of a threat to start with. Pro car rose a little bit and started doing its own thing and, um, was just, you know, an alternative out there. And now you've got ARG with all the categories that it has in, in its portfolio. So Supercars has a bit of a history here, and, and I understand why, 
because there's only so much money to go around. It's only so big a market in Australia that you want to protect your patch, your investment, your your entity and your era. And, and, you know, supercars have been around as a brand and as a company for, what, 23 years now. So it's just business. That's just how the world works. But uh, it's really interesting to see that whenever someone else so i mean we saw it didn't we there were drivers who were not allowed to race in the super touring 1000 who uh, were v8 supercar drivers there was external pressures people had to pull out of drives because it was that's their race you race in our race uh cameron mcconville had to bail on a djr drive because of it that uh, craig baird picked up there was I think Russell Ingle was going to run the first two-litre Bathurst and was uh, going to be in a Vectra. Then they offered him up a BMW, but he said, no, I'm a HSV. He had a, a deal with a HSV dealership, so uh, he couldn't do it. But it, it created a real us and them thing going on rather than, you know, we saw it again, you know, in recent years. Chas Mostert couldn't do TCR, wanted to do TCR, uh, but couldn't. So it was a little bit of us versus them, and you're you're either with us or you're with them. There was kind of no in-between. And it's understandable like, you'd take that approach to things, but this would have been nice if everyone could have just played ball and we'd had two great races, two great categories, but I guess that's an idealist way, idealist way of thinking. Very idealist way of thinking. Yeah. Doesn't happen to motorsport that often, does it? No, certainly not. We could all have the, the great thing. Why can't they all just get along? But the reality is there's, there's a lot of money involved. There's plenty of egos. There's plenty of politics. That's just the nature of of motorsport, sport and, and life. But some of the cars, uh, there are so many uh, elements to super touring. And when I think of the sweetest sounding cars, the V6 Mondeo is so hard oh. to beat. It really, it made a distinct screaming noise that did sound the part. And look, even if you're a V8 fan with a great love of V8s, as indeed we are, uh, you can still love other stuff. You can still like other things. So the, most most stuff was four cylinder, but the only thing that was in Super Touring was the Mondeo with the V6 and the Volvo with five. Everything else, off the top of my head, had four. Um, I can't think of anything else that wasn't a four. But um, yeah, that, that some of those Mondeos they were around for so long. Uh, Peter Hills raced a bunch of those cars for many years that had raced in the British Touring Car Championship in North America. You remember Jim Richards? He drove the Hungry Jacks Mondeo. Oh, yeah. Yeah. A lot of famous people drove that Mondeo, didn't they? There was like Jeff Allen, the um, British touring car driver. Kevin Schwantz had a run in it. Yep. Yep. Um, John John Bowers was originally linked with that program when those two cars were brought to Australia for the 95 season as well. And I think Tony Longhurst had a steer of one in testing. Yeah. yeah. Longhurst drove one in testing. But, of course, he was starting – remember that – he had been a partner in the BMW team with Terry Morris and Frank Gardner, which was Logamo, which LO from Longhurst, GA from Gardner and MO from Morris created Logamo Racing. So he went off and did his Castrol Falcon program. He originally had been quite vocal saying two litre was the way to go, but then sort of revised that and thought, well, hang on. No, actually, I think V8 is the go. So set up that Castrol Falcon program and his own team and, uh, yeah, he tested that Mondeo in early 95, but it ended up uh, with Greg Hansford getting the drive, which is a great opportunity because he hadn't had a full-time touring car drive basically ever beyond mm. you know, being a relative regular with the Moffat uh, Mazda program. And, of course, sadly, history shows that uh, first weekend at Phillip Island in 95, and that was the, 
that was the the big black mark on on super touring i mean in australia his uh, accident that was the only fatality in two liter super touring in the, the short sharp history that it had here but because there'd been the death of Keith O'Dor, uh, the British driver in the Nissan program in Germany, uh, Greg Hansford, obviously, in a, you know, it was a big accident. Turn one, Phillip Island, you know, the, uh, the wall on the outside and bounced back and was, was hit by poor Mark Adderton in the Peugeot who had nowhere to go. Uh, that was and really- they were both the same kind of accident as well. O'Dor, yeah, O'Dor's yeah. at the old, um, not Norris ring, at Harvest. Yeah. 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 Um, sadly hit very squarely in the driver's side door and, I remember reading a lot of stuff around that time talking about side impact protection and not just super touring, but in touring cars in general and what more could be done. I know the DJ, when we went back, when did the DJR cars book, um, we unearthed info that extra side intrusion bars were placed in those cars in response to those accidents. Yeah. Um, it was definitely something that um, the after effects of that did linger with the series, at least from a public perception standpoint. Yeah, and I think too the reality was that it was only a case of, oh, what four maybe five months since Don Watson's crash at Bathurst. So mm. and remember that the, the V8 touring cars raced at the Bathurst Sprint Round in '95, a week maybe two weeks after Greg's crash. So front row of the grid for that round was left vacant uh, in his honour and Don Watson's honour. So uh, yeah, that was obviously a a very sad scenario. Uh, and Ross Palmer had stuck a fair bit of money into to bring out those two Mondeos, which were Andy Rouse cars that came via Spain. They'd raced in Spain the previous year. So they pressed on with uh, Jeff Allen, as you mentioned, and then Jim Richards stepped in that car later in 95 and put it on pole. I think first time up for the the last round at Eastern Creek, which supported the the 12 hour proddy car race. So, uh, but I, I, when you think about it, you think about some of the, the great cars, they weren't great because they uh, won all the time, but, the Volvo wagon is, <laughs> I still see people write about this online saying when Brocky drove the wagon, Brock never Didn't raced happen. the wagon. Tony Scott raced the wagon. Brock drove the sedan the next year, but so many people link him to that wagon, which is, is quite funny, but that wagon, it was the perfect car for Volvo in Britain. And then in Australia, uh, it didn't win any races, but it didn't have to. That was a car that slightly missed its era as well because the whole point of that of them running the wagon was because aero and downforce wise it was better than the sedan when no one was running splitters or wings but of course when they debuted in the 94 season um alpha turned up with their with their <laughs> what was it the silverstone model the car that had yeah. the um wings and splitters in the boot <laughs> yeah <laughs> so yeah got around the rules that way and then after that the FIA said, yeah, okay, we can't really do anything about this. Have all the wings you want. So Volvo <laughs> went to the sedan the following year. But, and then one of those British Touring Car Championship wagons came out here for 95. Yeah, Tony Scott drove it in the, the Super Touring Championship. Remember that they put white wheels on it? It looked pretty cool. And, and a big mm. scooped in, in England the year before. It didn't have the front splitter bumper section. It was just a pretty standard looking thing. They got up to a bit of skullduggery in terms of inside the engine on how to get some power out of that thing, which uh, I can't remember the technicalities off the top of my head, but it's been reported about online in, in previous years about some of the, let's say, uh, interesting ways that they read the rules on to how to be able to, to develop power because otherwise it was a very uh, short on power engine, that first one. But the Aussie way... <laughs> Sorry, a TWR car looking for ways through the rule book. Yep, yep. It's not a new Help thing. Help me shocked. 
Yeah. <laughs> um, but they put that big scoop splitter on the Volvo wagon here in Australia and uh, Tony Scott drove it till the end of 95 and then it went back to Sweden. So sadly that car is uh, no longer... In fact, we've got a lot of questions about where are the super tourists, who's got them in Australia, but the reality is there's stuff all of them here because a lot of them were sold back overseas or they were only here for, you know, those factory cars were basically here to be used and then to largely go back. So uh, I reckon if I counted them up, I'd struggle to count 15 cars still in the country. Mm. There's quite a few over in New Zealand as well. Um, I hear there's a lot of Audi parts in Albury. (laughs) There is, but there's, well, there's two Audis in Australia. One's complete and one's not. And the one at Albury is one of the front wheel drive cars that um, I remember that Audi were the only team or manufacturer with the four wheel drive, the A well, the Audi 80 and then the A4. So BJR had two Audi 80s in 95 when they came in and then they had a, a series of different four wheel drive A4s. Uh, and then they had the front wheel drive cars for the last year in 99 before they departed. And of course, BJR bought Tony Longhurst. Isn't it funny how it all links out? So Tony <laughs> Longhurst sold out of the BMW team to set up a V8 team, ran that for, what, five, six years, went off and drove for uh, Stone Brothers in 2000, sold his licence, one of his cars and a bunch of his stuff to Brad Jones, who was stepping out of two litre to come into V8. So it's funny how it all uh, connects through and and, and clicks. But, yeah, BJ, I've got a a front-wheel drive uh, Audi still in Aubrey. It's in, I think it's in a container with a bunch of, it's, it's not complete. It's, it's pulled apart and it's, it's, it's basically um, would need to be completely assembled, but there is one of their four wheel drive cars sitting at the national motor racing museum at, at Mount Panorama, which um, of course, everyone who listens to this podcast regularly knows that we uh, great mates with the team at the national motor racing museum. They are reopened. They're open every day, except for Tuesdays. If you want their opening uh, hours and details, jump on the, Museum's Bathurst website or on the, the museum's Facebook page. They've got a Dick Johnson exhibition actually starting up. So uh, that's the only way that I could put Dick Johnson in a two-litre podcast because uh, the only other link I've got is that Stephen Johnson raced a BMW once at Lakeside. Otherwise, it's a Dick Johnson free super touring zone. No, quite right. Unless you want to include some of the more disparaging comments he made about the series. Oh, that was the other I will leave that for it, yeah. <laughs> That's the other thing I could. I thought I could wheel in. But the car that's sitting at the museum is really interesting. Um, we had it on a display at Bathurst a few years ago, and uh, it's not a runner. We had to push it out, and it needs a birthday to make it a runner again. But uh, I got really interested to know the history of it. And luckily enough, uh, probably nearly two years ago now, I went up to Aubrey, spent some time at BJR, sifting through their paperwork and their files, with permission from Brad and Kim, by the way, I didn't just, <laughs> you didn't just sneak in. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be just rude. Indiana Jones, your way under the roll at all. Yeah. I rang him and told him I was coming and what I was doing. They knew they were supportive. So I actually found, I think they had eight or nine different Audis over the course of those four or five years. So that car that's in the museum, it's in a latter uh, livery, like the silver traditional Audi sport livery, basically like they ran them in 98, 99, but that car, clinched Brad the championship in 96 at Oran Park in the last round when BMW and Audi, like they were the two, they were the Penske and Triple Eight of Super Touring in Australia. They were pound for pound, the two big dogs backed by BMW factory um, programs and flying out the latest bits. And, you know, and of course they were 
to German manufacturers. So they were just fighting their regular war in all fronts, in all super touring series around the place. But when the championship was on the line, if you remember in 96, that the second last round, BMW went and imported a couple of um, latest generation cars, which I think the Audi blokes from memory felt that was a bit against the spirit of kind of what they had plotted here that you'd run year old cars. So Audi responded and flew out a car that I think was going to be for Frank Beeler from Macau, but they diverted it to Australia. So they didn't even have time to repaint it in that traditional red and dark blue Oryx Audi livery. It was still silver with the Oryx and other stickers slapped on it. And Brad used that car to win the championship and sealed the deal in the under lights round on the short track at uh, Oran Park. That became Cam Conville's car the following year in the Super Touring Series. He won a few races. I think he finished third or fourth in the points. Uh, and he finished third at Bathurst with the Belgian driver, Jean-Francois Omroul, who was one of the most probably forgotten and overlooked Bathurst podium finishes in history <laughs> because... A, he's Belgium. B, it was a super touring race. C, no one in Australia heard of him before or since. And D, he never got to stand on the actual podium because they finished fourth on the road and got moved up to third when the winning BMW got booted from the results. So, uh, and then they used it as a ride car later on. Uh, and that's the car that, remember the video of Bradley taking Brock for a lap at Bathurst? Yes, yeah. That's the car, that's the car that he took Brock for a, a run in around the mountain. And they used it as a ride car um, while they were running the front-wheel drive cars in, in, in the racing series. So, uh, yeah, really interesting history, really cool car, and um, I'd love to see them get those things cranked up again. I think they've been offered money for both cars of significant value because there's only so many of those cars that Audi Sport built, and most of them are either um, – some are destroyed, the rest are all tucked away or restored or in a museum or doing a bit of racing overseas. So – I reckon they could just about name their price down the track because they're uh, they're pretty cool pieces of history and I can't see them for a long time though ever putting one back on a track, but it would be really cool. Well, I think if you listen to a recent episode of the Motor Focus Model Car podcast with Kim Jones, he's acutely aware of how much all those things are worth and um, is willing to charge <laughs> willing to charge the right price. That's <laughs> silly, Kim. He's not silly, is he? Uh, you're right there. We'll get back to the podcast in just a moment, but I wanted to quickly tell you about our good friends at Timken, a world leader in engineered bearings and mechanical power transmission products and services. Now, you might know their name and you might recognise their logo, but did you know that Timken bearings are used in the centrepiece of one of the most stunning stadiums in the world of sport, the $2 billion, yes, billion-dollar Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta, features a retractable roof that is a work of incredible engineering. It features eight triangular roof panels, or pedals as the designers call them, that slide open and close in the same way that a camera shutter does. Each pedal weighs almost 500 metric tonnes and when the roof is closed, each pedal cantilevers over 60 metres from the outer edge of the stadium. Now despite the weight, the size and the complexity of the design, the roof can be closed in just over seven minutes and open in just over eight, with Timken's tapered roller bearings used to ensure each petal moves smoothly. The stadium's home to the Atlanta Falcons NFL team and the Atlanta United Major League Soccer team, and in 2019, it hosted the crown jewel of American football, the Super Bowl. We'll bring you more cool facts about Timken in each episode of the V8 Sleuth podcast through the course of the year. Now, it's back to the podcast. 
when I think about the cars that are around in Australia, um, the Hyundai Lantras, they're still floating. They are still around. Remember that they were a um, Australian built and run program. Colin Bond actually raced one of those cars in Macau and Wellington. That was kind of his last race in 94. Um, he did Bathurst with Gibson Motorsport, which was going to be his last run. And then he, he did do a little bit of running in that uh, Hyundai. Remember the Jim Richards? He was going to race one of them. He practiced one, I think, at Winton in 95, but uh, pulled a pin and didn't do it. But those cars are around. There's a few of the Mondeos, most certainly still around. Um, well, those Hyundais, didn't they have to reverse the um, reverse the direction of spin of the engines on those? Yeah, yeah I think they, were they encountered more problems. Enough. Yeah, so, that didn't go so well. Uh, but Hyundai yeah. must have stuck a fair bit of coin in back then because mm. they were Hyundai-branded cars originally. Uh, Steve Hardman ran them before they ended up with Paul Pickett, the privateer, and they lived on in a couple of other privateers' hands. I think uh, Nigel Stone's had one for a while and uh, Paul Leebeater. So those cars are still kicking around somewhere. So there's two more there for the, the super touring family reunion, whenever that may occur. Um, BMW-wise, there's a ex-Vic Lee British Touring Car Championship car, which is in the country um, uh, with Chris Oxley, uh, who's run that car infrequently. I think he ran at the uh, Sandown Historics going back a couple of years. That's one of those green, remember the green E36s that was the infamous Soper and Cleland incident? That's one of those cars from uh, the Vic Lee team, but it, um, it raced here with Paul Pickett, uh, which he ran that car before he ended up with the Hyundai's. So, uh, so those are floating around. Uh, but beyond that, there's not a great deal. Um, the the Cavaliers, the Vectras that, I mean, remember Cameron McLean had the Greenfield Vectra? Mm. Um, that later went to John Henderson. So he used that car late in Super Touring season history. I think it's in Ireland, last I heard, that car got sold overseas. So a few what of them, think, a few of them lasted as under two-litre sports sedans for a while. Mm. Uh, there's probably a couple kicking around. But, yeah, like you said earlier, lots in New Zealand and, and lots have gone back to the UK. Well, you think of the one that Peter Brock drove in, in the 90, 1997 AMP Bathurst 1000. That's actually that's actually with John Cleland. Yeah, now. it is. And, and he's been racing it in uh, Super Touring uh, in the UK. So one of the other questions we've got a, a lot before we did this podcast was people asking, could they get up and running a Super Touring Classic Series in Australia? But the reality is no, because they struggle to do that in the UK simply because... Uh, these things aren't cheap race cars and parts are getting harder and harder to source. And a lot of the stuff was bespoke. It was built by the team for the car. It's not a case of a, an off the shelf production item. And uh, so they've struggled to the point where I think the super touring revival series in the UK had a really good boom period a few years ago. And then it's kind of slipped over the other side of the cliff because these things aren't cheap to run. And, for a club racer or someone who wants to do it at a decent level in historic type racing, uh, that's a, that's a pretty big hill to climb. So there's no way we would ever see a, a revival type series here in Australia for that reason, but also because there's, there's not enough cars, but I think it'd be cool to see a few of them back out there running at a super sprint type event or, or something along those lines, um, in the future. But, uh, you said before about big names. I mean, I wrote a little list of this is who you saw in Super Touring, not always at the same time. Mm. Peter Brock, Jim Richards, 
Russell Lindell drove a Vectra for a couple of rounds late 96. Greg Murphy, Brad Jones, Paul Morris, Jeff Brabham. I mean, just that nucleus core, Tony Longhurst, of course, at the start. It's a pretty impressive roll call. Um, and then you add in some impressive other talent, like Stephen Richards was an independent that won some races. Cameron McLean, who I watched some races the other week. He should have won one in 98 in the Expo mm-hmm. Diet Co car, but it was a year dominated by the Audis and Jim Richards Volvo. Um, Brooke Tatnell. Spring yeah. Uh, remember he drove a Vectra? Do you remember that? Mm. Yeah, yeah. Don't forget, Alan Jones had a run in the 97 Bathurst 1000 as well. Yeah, but it didn't end well. No, 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 it didn't. But he was still there. And that's probably the other thing. Like, those races attracted the top names from Europe, like, in a, in a way that we hadn't seen at Bathurst in quite a few years. You had the factory Williams cars out. You had the works Peugeots come out. As we said, the factory Volvos were out the following year and the Volvos that ran in 97 were, had a bit of work support as well. The factory Vauxhalls yeah. came out in 97 and 98 and even if one of them did run as a Holden. Yeah. <laughs> and the other thing was that BMW and Audi threw their support behind the local teams of Diet Coke and, and BJR. I mean, they were world-renowned, those two teams, for what they did and how they did it. I mean, BJR got given the nod to represent Audi at Macau and run cars there. Uh, with you know, Frank Beeler drove for them at Bathurst and there in Macau, mm. and I think he won at Macau, did he? And Brad was third or something. So, yeah, uh, against the works Schnitzer run BMWs yeah. to give you an indication of the esteem that event was held in. Yeah, and like you said, the the world came to Bathurst in '97 as it hadn't come to the mountain for probably ten years, but the element. And in 98, there was less um, overseas cars that came. And by 99, it got to the point where it cost so much to fund that to bring them all out. The Channel 7 just couldn't do it anymore. And and then there was the politics of, uh, in 99, you had the, well, what became known as Bathurst Tourers, but it was Junior Tourers, New Millennium Oscars, whatever you want to call it. It, it had a few name changes that... Clearly, there was pressure from supercars. They were looking to run their own development series. This was a little bit of a threat. Um, lots of politics, but the, the, the way it all played out was it, it was unfeasible to run a 1,000-kilometre race because they, they wanted to put Super Tourers and Bathurst Tourers in the one race, which CAMS wouldn't allow. So mm. the Bathurst Tourers, which a lot of them were converted Oscars and some of them were actually still Oscars, uh, raced under a, an Oscar racing permit, Bob Jane's sanctioning body, so they weren't able to run in the same race. They could run at the same meeting, but not in the same field. So hence we had the Bob Jane teammates, Bathurst 99, 500K super touring race, 300K Bathurst tour race, shitty weather. I was there that year. It was so miserable and depressing and difficult. There's no crowd. It was raining and wet. You've only recently dried out, haven't you? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, <laughs> it was just time to go home for, for a lot of people. And, and then after that, seven were out of the sport and, and that was it. So the October race event uh, was gone. And of course, for 2000, supercars were the only 1000K race and they kind of rolled on from there as the Bathurst 1000, which I know we answered a question on the pod recently about where does the history stop and start with the, the two-litre Bathurst or the official Bathurst or the V8 Bathurst. To me, if it looks and smells like a Bathurst 1000, it doesn't matter what broadcaster it had or who ran it, it's in the, the hearts and minds of the fans. And 
in the hearts and minds of fans, I think you'd probably say in the majority of the five-litre race is the Bathurst 1000. But I think it's totally wrong to discount the two-litre races. They were the official race that connected to 1960, 63 onwards. Um, but the, the supercar race had the elements of the race that everyone had come to know and love. So I think it's totally fair and reasonable that uh, I think it's wrong that if anyone says Jim Richards is a six-time Bathurst 1000 winner, bullshit. He won seven. I was there in 98. I saw him do it. I saw him win it. Um, just as Stephen Richards is a five-time Bathurst 1000 winner, even though one of the he won the V8 race in 98. Um, so in my mind, they're both Bathurst 1000s. They both deserve their place in the record books. And uh, I think it's only fair and reasonable that that's how it's, history is written. And I think it, it really has been written that way. Totally agreed. Totally agreed. Um, just to double back on talking about cars that are in Australia, one I'd kind of forgotten about, touched on the Phil Ward XDTM Mercedes 190Es that ran in Super Touring. One of those cars is back in Australia, albeit not in Super Touring form. Well, Phil Ward took his two Group A cars and converted them to two-litre. Mm. And then later on, he, he got an XDTM car and decommissioned that to a two-litre car. So there were actually three. Oh, okay. 80s, 190s. And, yeah, you're right. Um, uh, Andrew Medicis ended up with one of those, which, of course, remember, he drove the Group A cars at Bathurst in 86. So that's been put back to its livery as it ran um, in Group A. So uh, remember Technophone was the sponsor for, for Phil Ward and then Nokia after that? Mm, yeah. So, yeah, those cars are around. Um and they went to North America after Ward yeah. was done with them. Yeah, went to the North American Touring Car Championship. And I think the two Group A cars uh, ended up back here over the course of time. And it's probably a good chance for us to give a plug to a, uh, a, a website that um, I've had a little bit to do with in, in the recent past. But if you go online, and, and obviously in V8 Sleuth World, we have captured some of the histories of these cars in our site for our subscribers. But... Uh, there's a website called supertouringregister.com. It's free to access and, and go through. It's run by a, a guy in the UK, Nigel Clark. And he's basically um, sat down and gone through and put together the histories of a whole pile of super touring cars uh, by brand, by model. It's really interesting reading. And this is where you can actually go to read up on a few of the cars that we're we're talking about, so I'm, you know, I'm clicking on it now. Uh, the Merc that Phil Ward had that he got from the from DTM, it was actually a car apparently that Jacques Lafitte drove in, in DTM. So, <laughs> and run by Helmut Marco. Uh, that's right, in '86 at Bathurst. So, mm. uh, yeah, I, I mean, so many of these cars have been around the world a couple of times, or maybe more, and and come back or gone the other way, and vice versa. So. Um, yeah, it's it's um it's really cool. It's really really cool to see some of these cars have 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 come back and you know um, living on, whether it's in two liter form or various other forms. Because remember, a lot of cars in the early two liter era in England and in Australia were actually converted Group A cars, Sierras, BMW M3s, Toyota Corollas. They they filled the field. Without them, wouldn't have been a series. Yeah, a lot of Sierras that were deco even decommissioned RS500s that had the turbo taken off them and a couple of the extra wings, which a couple of those did run in that form out here as well. There were, what, I think, one of the ex-Glen Seton cars. Yep, yep. 
Which, um, by the way, is covered in the new CEDO uh, official racing history of Glenn Seaton book that we're working on at the moment, going to press in the next couple of weeks or so, uh, book out end of 2020, and includes the histories of all of the race cars that GSR Glen Seaton Racing built. So that Sierra is is one of them. That's the car. That's actually the car that was in the big lakeside crash in '89. Mm. Uh, it, it remember Andrew Maniki caught on fire. Seaton, Murray Carter, John Lusty, a uh, big shunt. Uh, but Seaton's team built, rebuilt, or repaired, got that car repaired, and sat on it for a couple of years, and then it was sold as a two litre car to Steve Allery, and it had a pretty long life in two litre racing. Um, for the next, oh, what, 94, five, six years? Yeah, probably three seasons that car appeared. And ironically, it never raced at Bathurst with Glen Seaton Racing because they had to build another car after the shunt and they never brought it back. So it was only uh, Steve Valerie uh, who raced it at Bathurst 93 in the two-litre class. And I think Kirk Kratzman raced it in the Super Touring support race. Because remember, Super Tourers in 96 at Bathurst were a support class. So everyone kind of had a little taste of... Super Tourers of that era at Bathurst before, of course, they became the main show the next year. Except Brock, who was supposed to drive the Volvo, but um, didn't. Well, yeah, he, he was obviously asked to focus on his, his HRT commitments. And Murphy was the same. Murph didn't drive the Audi. They brought out uh, Tamara Vidali, the um, mm. factory driver, to to drive his car uh, instead of Greg. So remember the day, though, that um, and we will ask Murph about this. Murph's our next guest on the podcast uh, next week, as we uh, record this pod, I'm going to chat to him later today, our time, but it's going to come out in uh, in next week's episode. Remember the day that Brad Jones didn't count the laps right at Malala? Slowed down, waved to the crowd, thought he'd won the race. Murph went past him, but there was still three quarters of a lap to go. Oh, no. No, I didn't remember that. Really? <laughs> yeah, Murph had to jump on the brakes to let him win again because they were screaming down the radio for him to slow down. Jeez. <laughs> oh, dear. But but <laughs> when I think there's probably we talked about the the ride our lap earlier on, but for me there's two defining memories and moments in Super Touring history that stand out head and neck and shoulders above everything else. Longhurst and Morris Biffo mm-hmm. at Lakeside ninety five. If you've never seen the vision, go and find it. It's Morris Jones Murphy from memory, three wide. Flat strap through the kink, turn one at Lakeside, three wide, they make it through, no one crashes, no one ends up off the road. It is one of the most unbelievable bits of motor racing vision I've ever seen. If you've not seen it or you've forgotten about it, I think we loaded it on our our socials a fair way back, but Mm. it is. Actually, you know what? Let's have a little listen to how it was called in 95. Jones gets a run down the inside. He's got the inside running for the corner linear on the straight. Morris is going to hang in there. Oh, look at this as Morris stays with him. And Murphy says, I want a part of this too. Oh, no, one, two, three, abreast as they go down the kick. You can't do this. But then, Dunham, what about Jones in the centre? What can he do? Murphy's going to win the corner. Oh, that has got to be the hairiest ride I've ever seen down the main straight of Lakeside. Three abreast through the kick. Seven go three abreast. Here's a replay. This is looking from Brabham. Brabham will be sitting back and going, This is beautiful. Thank you. We might all go here and I've got the lead. Ah, oh, Brad Jones, what a ride. He had him either side and he just kept the boot into it. He's got plenty of ticket, I'll tell you. See, listen, you listen to that 
just remember lakeside now is has been widened a bit back then it was super narrow even by 1990 standards it was barely three cars with wide at the time to yeah. fit those three cars and sure there was a little bit of panel rubbing but the fact that they all made it through unscathed and raced on it's just remarkable yeah it, it was awesome stuff and the thing was too, that was called in post-production. So it wasn't a live thing. So you know what's going to happen. And I think that's hard having done a lot of post-produced commentary where you know what's going to happen, but you have to make it sound like you don't. And and Daryl Eastlake called the late great Daryl Eastlake. He brought attention. You had to listen. You had, to, you know, sometimes he was criticized for being just too waffly right over the top. Too big and booming and just too much and over the top. But he did what he was meant to do. He grabbed attention. He made you look, he made you listen. Um, there wasn't much info content in the calls, but that wasn't his job. That's, he wasn't there to be Neil Crompton or Martin Brundle. He was there to be, you know, loud and proud and big and booming and out there. And, and that's exactly what he was. And yeah, that's one of the best bits of vision. I still get all frothed up seeing that. I reckon that is just, um, just sensational stuff. And, and they're the two, standout moments i reckon in in super touring um there were some other good ones along the way i mean remember david auger and bob tweedy at amaru in 97 oh yeah. <laughs> yeah the um the kick yes was it was it auger kidding kicking tweedy or tweedy kicking auger's car i think it was i think it was tweedy kicking auger so they'd been a shunt they'd been a shunt at the last corner at amaru last round of 97 and the cars were rolling around under safety car and when the alpha went past, he Kung Fu kicked it on the way through. Ugh. Yeah. You mentioned David Auger, of course. He was onto his second alpha by that point, I believe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, that was another big shunt earlier in the year because he took over the alpha that Steve Richards had raced in 95 for GRM, which was an ex-Italian series car. And remember that Richard actually... Okay, so we're sort of into the, the discussion on shunts because there were some good ones in Super 2. Well, not good, but big ones, I mean. Mm. Remember Steve Richards? He had a bone rattler at Lakeside in 96 in the Honda Accord. So he had to he had a, a lose over the uh, near the bridge, which thing went inside on, and I think it knocked him out briefly too. But they the Honda was sidelined, so they had to wheel the Alpha back out for a round or two to keep him rolling. So then Orga bought that car the next year, Did ended up in a shunt at Phillip Island at huge end for end barrel roll. They had to reshell the car and he, he kept rolling. He, he raced that car for another four, five, six years. Um, but then it ended up in that shunt at Amaru. But that wasn't the biggest shunt at Amaru that weekend. Mike no. Gerald's Peugeot, there's an awesome photo. We'll dig it out. Um, we'll run it somewhere sometime soon that Dirk Kleinsmith, our gun photographer, who uh, we purchased our, uh, Dirk's archive a little while ago, and he's taken a lot of the photos in our Bathurst 12-hour Going Global book that's got a photo of every car from every year's race. And it's an aerial shot. I think he was in a chopper at the time, just flukily. That was at the time that the crash happened. Up the hill at Amaru, the Audis are trying to put a lap on Mike Fitzgerald's Peugeot, which was the Mark Addison car from a few years earlier. Um, there was contact. His car goes flying through the air, spinning around on fire, and Dirk's got the photo from the chopper. It is an unbelievable uh, photo, but it was a mammoth, mammoth accident that could have been far nastier. 
Oh, absolutely. It really is a spectacular photo. And it's what, you, like, I still remember seeing that on TV when it happened. It was a huge, huge hit. Yeah, that was one of those ones where you go, wow, if that went just a little bit the other way, that could have been really, really nasty. But, uh, yeah, there were some big, big shunts. But um, there was always that camaraderie of, of the teams in the Toka Australia paddock that helped um, bind people together. And if I think right back to, there was one of the most powerful men in motor racing now started in super touring as a crew member behind the scenes. Do you reckon you know who I'm talking about? Mm, no, I think I'm going to need more info. Okay. Formula one race director. Ah, yes. Yeah. Michael, Massey. Michael Massey. A good mate, Michael Massey. He, you, you go back through those old super touring TV telecasts. He was with the Mondeo team, the night racing team with Peter Hills and the like. Uh, quite often you see him as the car controller for those pit stops uh, when they brought compulsory pit stops in. So, uh, you you know, from super touring to formula one, uh, Michael's pathway is, is taking him all the way through. Remember we talked about the, there's so many topics and I'm getting all excited because it's bringing back so many memories, but the detune group, a cars, there were Sierras. Peter Hill started in a Sierra, which was one of the old Tony Longhurst B and H cars. Um, some of those M3s uh, that were the two and a half litre cars were converted. So um, remember John Blanchard ran one in 94. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Mark Adderton drove one. The Momo Course red car, that looked beautiful. That was the Paul Morris Diet Coke car from the previous year, one of the ex Bugatti cars. Um, Dorman and Cotter, Clark Sinks. Remember they had Clark Sinks backing on, on their cars? Uh, they were the ex-JPS Group A slash Brock Mobile cars. So... And they had the number one because Dorman had yes. won the championship the preceding year in semi-controversial circumstances. There was a clash, wasn't there, between John Cotter, his teammate, and John Smith in the Caltex Toyota uh, at Oran Park. So, yeah, there was a two-litre championship as part of the Australian Touring Car Championship, which was for V8s in, in 93. And actually, that's one of the cars that you bring up there. So the, the Corolla Seeker, remember those? The Caltex cars that John Smith and Bondi drove in 93 – one of those cars ran at Bathurst, which was the last year, 94, that two-litre cars were a class with the outright V8s. And um, Melinda Price, Andrew Reid, Gary Jones drove one. It was out of the race in the early um, laps in the rain. And then Mel drove one of those cars the next year uh, in Super Two. Uh, I think it caught on fire. It called one day, uh, one night. It was a night race, 95. But those Corolla Seekers have disappeared completely. I... I I don't know where they are. If anyone knows, messages. There were some stories at the time that they were going to take the mechanicals and put them in a Camry body shell that Craig Lowndes was going to drive um, with the Box Hill Institute of TAFE running those cars. So what happened to them? What happened to the bits? I think some of them were ratted for the Hyundais that Bondi helped put together back in the day. But what happened to those Corolla Seeker bodies and cars? I'd love to know because you could you could get one of those bad boys up and around, pumping around and um, have a bit of fun in one of them. A factory supported Toyota, no no less from the 93 season. They've got to be somewhere. Everything, everything ends up somewhere. It's just a question of where it is. It may may be crushed, but it may be somewhere. Don't say that. Don't be such a killjoy. Don't crush my hopes and dreams of finding a Corolla seeker from the early nineties. It could be the making of me. It could make my week. Come on now. It could. It might not too. But the other thing, um, when you think about um, 
the cars of super touring. I mean, we've, we've covered some of the top tier stuff, but Toyota Camry, there wasn't piles of Camrys and two of them ended up in Australia via South Africa uh, for a time with um, Mike Quinn's team, Phoenix Motorsport ran them after they'd run the Peugeot program. Um, they also had a show car as well. And I know this because the show car went to the Bowen show one year. Oh. I remember walking oh, into the no. pavilion and seeing, yeah, I know. I was surprised too. I walked into the um, one of the pavilions and lo and behold, there's this um, mock-up super tourist sitting there. <laughs> when you're in Bowen and not much of that stuff comes to you, that's a big deal when the Camry show car rolls in. Absolutely. I think the, the last thing that had, last motorsport related thing of any note that had rolled into town was the DJR show car. So that's uh, Sierra. So. Yeah, right. Well, yeah. we talked about, um, uh, some of the cars. I mean, we, we covered off that there was one of the cars we never saw here was an Alpha 156. No one ever ran one of those in, in Australian Super Tour. We never saw the Chrysler Stratus that raced the North American Championship. But probably the, the Commodore of Super Touring, where most people had one, was a BMW 318i or a 320i or before that an M3. That was the most popular car of, of Super Touring because a lot of those factory cars were sold off to privateers over time. So there's plenty of those things around. And you, they were user-friendly cars too. I mean, they were one of the few rear-drive super tourers, so would be popular in that respect. And like you said, BMW's customer racing program at that point made sure that there were a lot of them around and they were all well-supported. Yeah, definitely. And you see a lot of them popping up on the, the, the market overseas now um, in terms of some of those big race car auctions and, and private sales and, and they'd be a cool car to have. I think there's one of the interesting ones too, the, the car that Paul Morris drove in that Winton Biffo with Tony Longhurst, uh, that's in New Zealand. And I think that's being restored at the moment by the track tech team over there who are a TCR New Zealand team. Um, so we might look to do something on that on our website in upcoming weeks, because um, I think that's a pretty cool piece of history. And I would presume they're going to put it back to Diet Coke colors and, that era and specification, but, um, cause Longhurst cars out and about, isn't it? Yeah. He's driven that since he drove it overseas at, um, in the UK a couple of years ago. Um, that had a long life. That was the car that won the first two liter championship in 94 B and H three, one eight I BMW, which I think was originally a Bugatti car that, and mm. it may have been the, the car that Tony drove when he did the world touring car cup at Monza in 93. There's a bit, of, a bit of reports around that that's the same car that he drove. But I remember Stephen Ellery had it 95 as a privateer. Cameron McLean had it in 96. Um, spent some time. It did Bathurst in 97. It was the car that I think had the engine go bang that Alan Jones slipped on the oil in the Renault. Um, uh, yes. Cornish and Nigel Barclay drove it with Blair Smith. And the driver assistant that you'll see in the vision when they were making their driver changes at the pit stop was a certain uh, Kiwi mate of theirs who wasn't driving that weekend, Mr. G Murphy. Oh, really? There yeah. you go. Yeah, it was too. Um, Anthony Robson raced it. Alan Letcher raced it. It went all the way through till the end of super touring, I think in about 2000 in Australia. And it's, um, it's now in New Zealand. So that's where a few, well, we talked about it before, lots of super touring cars have ended up in New Zealand. They've probably gone back to the UK since their period racing, but New Zealand's become a little bit of a, a haven for them. Um, that's where the Diet Coke Bathurst winning Brabham's car lives. There is another car that has that livery on it, but it's not the, the race winning car. The race winning car is in 
New Zealand with Bruce Miles, who was the guy that owned the the Oryx Carina that Murphy started in in '94. That um, uh, James K drove as well, that the British touring car driver. So, and the the Morris car that I think is, and I'm interested in your take on this. I think that there's probably three candidates for the star of Australian Super Touring. It's Morris, Jones, and Richards. Yeah. Morris with four championships, two of them in the factory era, two of them in the privateer era. I think 99, he still had to beat the, the factory Audi and the factory Volvos. Factory Audis, there were two of them. Yeah. In 2001, he was the class of the field. He won every race bar one. You know, you know that he was always going to win that one. Uh, Brad Jones, two titles. Jim Richards didn't win a super touring title, but he won a pile of races. Um, who's the star of Australian super touring? For me, it's a tight run thing between Morris and Jones, but I reckon you've got to go with the dude. And the other thing is too, he won Bathurst on the road. It's not in the record books, but he had pole that weekend too. And I think a lot of people have overlooked how good that effort was to get pole in that field on that weekend. That's one of his crowning Bannerhead achievements that he doesn't get enough credit for. Oh, for sure. He was, whenever he was in the category, he was one of the, ben- he was the benchmark. He was the guy you had to beat week in, week out. And if that doesn't make you a candidate for being the king of the category, I don't know what does. Yeah. And I think too, that the, um, the thing that I always think about too, that rear wheel drive BMW or four wheel drive Audi, they were all standing start races. So they had such a free kick over the front wheel drive cars that off the line, Jim Richards would qualify on pole or front row the Volvo. In like 98, that S40 was a fast car. But mm. he had to fight from second or third or fourth every time because the two Audis and McLean's BMW would bolt off the line and he'd spend the next 20 laps hunting them down and passing them trying to get the win. So if, if you had rolling starts for Super Touring to take away that advantage that some of those cars had over front-wheel drive, I think we would have seen a very different scenario because the start and the track position was always going to go one way and it was to the German cars, as it were, um, against everybody else. So I think that worked right against the best of the front-wheel drive cars, no doubt. No, no, totally agreed. Makes total sense. One of the questions we got, mate, uh, in the lead-up to this was, uh, asked, and this is, I guess, a direct comparison to the current TCR landscape. It's clear we know Australian Racing Group did purchase some TCR cars and place them with teams and drivers and and programs. And a bit of that did go on in the Super Touring days. I remember. Remember the Nissan Primera that Stephen Richards drove for GRM. I think that car over time probably was. Look, we'd have to double check with with Alan Gow and, and Adderton and, and the like. But I've got a funny feeling. My memory is that that car was in essence, Toker Australia owned and then leased to other drivers. And so there was assistance given to help bring cars in, which I don't think um, is a bad thing because if you own a championship in a series and you want it to um, grow, develop, prosper, you've got to invest in it. So investing in cars or helping out teams or getting things rolling is no different from um, other forms of investment that other people make in other businesses. So that Premier, that's actually that's still around too. That's um, I did some filming with that car a couple of years ago here in Melbourne. Uh, it's part of a private collection, and I think it's one day going to be restored. So, uh, uh, and uh, you know, we didn't see a Nissan Premier on sale in Australia, but 
uh, we most certainly saw them race for a little while. So there's, there's, there are a few restoration projects out there that could be done for, for super tours, but um, big expense, big expense and nowhere to really race them. So, Well, as we talked about the level of technology that was in those cars, it does make them extremely expensive to then go and run. We, I know um, in Europe, when you compare them to like the ITC category, like the German DTM category of the period, those cars were technologically so far ahead of anything else yeah. touring car racing wise. And they're, they're incredibly expensive to run. And when you look at what's, what's still available now in terms of running a super tour without any level of factory assistance or factory support, it is a tough ask. Yeah. I think that the, the great thing is though, with any category that has a worldwide history, these cars are relevant no matter where you go around the world. They raced in North America, in Europe, um, Scandinavia. Super Touring was quite big. I was uh, huge in Scandinavia. Yeah, yeah, Nielsen with his Volvo program and there was BMs and all sorts of stuff there. Um, I'd love to do a count. I mean, go and have a look on the supertouringregister.com website. We're giving them a plug because they're great guys. Um, Nigel and um, I think he basically does it all himself. But if you do a rough count between how many records of each type of car he's got there to know how many roughly super tours there were around the world, you'd easily be, oh, you'd have to be up 450, 500, 600 cars. And he, he certainly hasn't got them all in there um, at the moment. It's a, it's a, an ever evolving um, process. So, well, you just think of like the 93 World Cup at Monza when 45 or 50 of them rolled up. And that was in 93. The series, the category ran for another five, six years after that. Well, the thing was when you said rolled up, I thought you meant that they rolled up on the track because I think they wadded up about 17 of the cars that made it in the field. Julian Bailey ended up with a um, Carina on its roof at one stage. And uh, the sister car to that car's in Australia, the ex-Will Hoy uh, what we believe to be the ex Will Hoy, um, Tom's GB Carina, that um, it also it also went on its roof. Yeah, it did. <laughs> it did the year in the uh, at Silverstone when its its team car Julian Bailey hit it and uh, put Will Hoy on his roof quite famously. So uh, that's the car that Milton Leslight had in Australia in the the black all auto parts car with it was red wheels I think wasn't it with the red pins. Yeah. So um, again, Carinas not cars that we had on sale in Australia, but we saw a bit of Carina action in, um, in two litre in Australia. So uh, there was a bunch of different types of two litre cars that we didn't get here. I mean, no one ever brought apart from Bathurst, the one year, the Renault Lagunas. Um, remember the Mazda Casitos's, the six, I think that's oh, the other. Yes. The, um, super the Mazda two- version of the Mondeo. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, there was three, two, three Mazdas in the UK. There was, um, uh, the Renault 19, which was the, the, the Renault before the Laguna. Um, so, yeah, there was some, some cool stuff out there over the course of the years and some, some great touring car memories. We get asked a lot about releasing them on DVD. Um, if you are a super touring fan, we have released a few super touring titles in recent years. You can jump on our online bookshop, uh, which is bookshop.v8sleuth.com.au. Uh, one title is the highlights of the 97 and 98 two-litre races. So I think there's about two hours of highlights of each of those races uh we've got a 99 bob jane team arts bathurst 99 release which has the the 500k super touring race and the 300k uh bathurst touring race included and then there's a classic australian motorsport title that is the super touring years 
which cover the season reviews of 98, 99 and the last year of 0001, for want of a better term, three season highlights um, on the one DVD. You can order them from our, our online store now. Um, we release uh, full Bathurst 1000s every year. So this year is 92, 93. Uh, next year, we, we do two a year, basically. So it's probably a couple of years before doing the full two-litre races falls into our uh, release schedule. I'd love to release some of those early 94, 5, 6-ish um, super touring races and rounds. But unfortunately, uh, the master tapes from those programs, I've checked with Tim Jardine and the guys at Z Space who produced so many of them early in the days, they don't have them, um, unfortunately. So, we're, I mean, we've got some very good VHS copies of a lot of those early programs, but I, I'm always, I don't think that's a quality that's, um, it's pretty good for what it was, but in terms of releasing that, um, it's probably not something that's quite to the level that we would like to to put out on a, a DVD. But uh, nevertheless, it's it's really interesting, isn't it, Will, that there's an appetite now for stuff that's 20, 25 years old. And that's what we talk about in our world of V8 sleuthing, for want of a better description. That's kind of the I remember when era. 20 years is about the period where um, things have been away for that long that people go, hang on a minute. I remember that vaguely. I'd like to know a bit more about that. And, and I reckon Super Touring's right in that uh, wheelhouse and hence why we're doing this podcast. Oh, absolutely. Like, I know, I, like, if you were growing up in that sort of era, they were really cool cars, really memorable, really exciting racing. So perfectly logical that you'd want to want to revisit that now. Now, speaking of revisiting, which of the Super Touring cars from history would you love to have the most? You can only pick one. Ooh, uh, I, I was a big Honda Accord fan back in the day. So I'd probably pick one of those from maybe 97 or 98 British Touring Car Championship era. Uh, so, or possibly an Andy Rouse Mondeo because they were great as well. One or the other, mate. You can't have both. I'll take the Mondeo. Whose name are you putting on the window? Uh, I reckon I'd go a 95 Kelvin Burt with the cool um, Valvoline livery. Some of those Mondeos still around, and, and Paul Radisic owns one of those old Mondeos too. So, um, and a few of them have ended up uh, in New Zealand, which is which is pretty cool. And there's some still left in Australia. So uh, I'm going to have to answer the question, aren't I? Yeah. I, I can't go past the S40 Volvo that won Bathurst in 98. I mean, pole position, won the race, the only five-cylinder car in history to win the Bathurst 1000. I think it's going to hold that record for a long time. Um, <laughs> unless unless someone chucks a couple of plug leads off in the last, in the yeah, closing I, laps I, of the 1000. I was going to say, unless there's a supercar that gets very sick coming out of the chase on lap 161. Um, Bathurst winner, you know, I, I think that's a, such a special part of any racing car. But the, the sound, the performance of what on paper – five cylinders, 300 horsepower front wheel drive, like I talked about earlier. Um, and then the other thing was that Jim Richards used that car in 99 in the Australian championship and won some races in it and um, finished second in the Bathurst 500 in 99 in the, the two liter race that was held in the rain the next year. So the other thing is that car is owned by Ricard Rydell. He actually owns that car now, which is a, a really cool part of its history. And he was kind enough to, um, spent some time with me backwards and forwards on emails a year or three ago. Um, and we put together a little story for muscle car because we wanted to keep the um, Bathurst winning car histories flowing through the magazine. And 
it got plenty of people upset that a Volvo S40 should be an Australian muscle car magazine. But mate, if, if, if a car of that um, type can do a 1492 around the mountain, I reckon it's a muscle car. It's just a little muscle car, but it's the little muscle car that could. Oh, totally agreed. Had five cylinders, so it's not like it was a, it was a tiny car. No, no, it was a, it was a cool thing and a cool part of history. And, um, to put the full stop on it, uh, Toka Australia uh, came to a close. The, the series was ended after the 2000-01 season. There was a bit of discussion that what had been Bathurst Touring was going to become Toka Tourers. And, and they took over the category management, actually, um, for the next season, which ultimately didn't happen, uh, with the plan that I guess they could, with Super Touring overseas dying, there was a bit of discussion that Super Production, which was kind of the next touring car cheaper category overseas could become the platform on which they built with the Toka Tours. Um, it all didn't happen and uh, Toka Australia wound down. As we mentioned, some of those cars and teams did press on with racing super touring uh, 2002-03 type era with the Power Tour and then um, some of those cars carried on with a, a series called the Touring Car Challenge which ran in the mid-2000s that was ex-Group A cars V8s, of course, this is before the Kumo series, um, Super Tourers, Future Tourers. It was a real licorice, all sorts of Aussie touring cars. So, uh, And some of them ended up in under two-litre sports events as well. So an amazing era, very short, sharp era, really. It's, what, six or seven years um, to discuss. But I, I think that there's the grounds to put together, and we get asked this all the time about any topic, are you going to do, do a book on X? Um I think a super touring history book covering that six or seven year period, um, covering the, the people involved, the cars, the racing, uh, what it all meant, what do people think about it to this day? Uh, I think that'd be something that's really interesting, fun to do. And it'd have worldwide interest and appeal as well, like our 12 hour book, because it's not just um, appealing to Australian fans. I think there's people around the world who uh, would voraciously consume content relating to that era. No, totally agreed. Totally agreed. Add it to the list. I was going to say, that was the <laughs> response of a man who went, Aaron, we don't need more book titles right now. We'd, we've got enough on our plate. But If you, if you can find book. the end of the list, you can add it to it. Oh, it's somewhere down there. It's somewhere down there. <laughs> I, I've loved talking super touring with you, Will. We're going to have to wrap it up very shortly. But um, by all means, all of our podcast listeners, if you've got some suggestions for whether it's categories or types of car or could be drivers, could be anything that you'd like to hear a, a feature focus episode on and, and get your thoughts or your questions in. By all means, send us a note through our v8sleuth.com.au website. There's a contact form on the page. Uh, leave us a review. We don't see enough reviews on our podcast, on the podcast platform. So leave a, a review. Give us the five stars. If it's anything less than five stars, you can jam it. We don't want four. We don't want three. We don't want two and we don't want one. I want five. Because um, if it ain't five, it ain't on. So is that a bit pushy, do you think? I'm foreseeing a few, a few one-star reviews coming right, just, okay. to, just to take the mickey. <laughs> <laughs> Either way, we love your feedback. We love your support. Um, we, we love uh, doing this because it's stuff that we're passionate about and keen on. And I know that there's so many people who are keen on it as well. Uh, our next podcast next week, Will, is Greg Murphy, the 1990. 699, 03 and 04 Bathurst 1000 winner. I will ask him some more about Super Touring uh, when I chat to him, those great years of 
racing the Audis and, of course, the Toyota Carina, but also some of the two-litre deals that didn't happen. Uh, a bit more of that on the podcast with Greg Murphy next week. Before we sign off to, uh, just recently, I put together, a, I spent some time doing a Facebook Live video, which I don't, I've not really ever done before, but the engagement was huge. The response was huge. So we'll, we will do another one of those um, sometime very soon. And I reckon we could get the technology working, Will, that we could probably do a Zoom call with a select group of V8 Sleuth fans and followers. That might be something we could do for a bit of fun as well. Yeah, that sounds good. We'll, we'll have a look into that. Will loves when I spring things on him in the podcast that we haven't previously discussed. The look on his face is just, oh, great. Another thing to do. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Thanks a lot. That's, that's really good. That's really good. Uh, next week, Greg Murphy on the podcast. Don't forget, too, we're also putting together the Motor Focus Model Podcast with Dimitri Camino and the team of Motor Focus. If you love your model cars, uh, subscribe to that one as well as V8 Sloop to hear plenty of discussion and plenty of stuff that's going on in model car collecting land as well. In the meantime, though, thanks again for joining us on the V8 Sloop Podcast, powered by Timken, a world leader in engineered bearings and power transmission products and services. In the meantime, go through our back catalogue, listen to all the episodes that you haven't before, and we will be back with you next week. Greg Murphy, our next guest on the V8 Sleuth Podcast. Bye for now. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil, and find out.